This episode is brought to you in partnership with Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. They are fully accredited by the Association of Reformed Theological Seminaries. You can learn more about them at their website, cbtseminary.org. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Jimmy Johnson here with my co-host, Austin McCormick, and we have the privilege of having James Dolzell to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. So welcome to the podcast, James. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. And could you please just introduce to our audience who you are, what you do? Sure. Um, I am an associate professor of theology at Cairn University. Uh, That's just uh, immediately north of Philadelphia, sort of between Philadelphia and Trenton, New Jersey. Um, I've been there for uh, eight years teaching. And uh, in addition to that, what else should I say? Um, prior to that, I had served as a teaching fellow for some time at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And then prior to that was pastoring a Reformed Baptist church in Alberta, Canada. But that that goes back some years. So most car- mm-hmm. most presently teaching theology at Cairn University. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast with us. And we're going to go ahead and just dive right in. We're talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. So to start us off, just give us a definition of what we mean when we say God is Trinity. We're really we're really talking about the fact that we believe in one God who subsists in three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that if we said... Um, if we said, who is God, we could say he is, using a singular pronoun, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, in so much as he is three distinct persons, but not three distinct beings. Uh, and this really is why this is a Trinity doctrine and not a um, tritheistic doctrine. Uh, there are three who are God, but not three gods. Uh, and the Trinity is really a way of expressing that mystery. I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat remiss to use the word definition only because definitions tend to have some idea of like a one-to-one scientific. Uh, and I don't, while I think that we can describe the Trinity truthfully and believe what we describe, to really have a definition uh, is impossible because we're talking about an infinite being and infinite beings, no pun intended, by definition can't be defined. Um, so, but it's really that it's really that we believe in one God who is three persons. These three persons are really distinct, but not three distinct gods. And where do we see this biblical and uh, theological rationale for this doctrine in the scriptures? It's a good question because you don't have a text that sort of says it all in terms of um, a, a sort of comprehensive biblical account. Uh, in microcosm. We have texts that are close in terms of triadic structures of names, baptizing in the name in the name singular of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, or instances where the three persons 
appear in a single narrative, uh, for instance, uh, in the birth narrative in which it's announced to Mary that the power of the Most High would would overpower, would overshadow her and the Holy Spirit would come upon her and the child conceived in her would be the Son of God. There you have the Spirit named, you have the Son of God named, and then by implication, the Father named as the Most High. So sometimes you have these um, sort of three persons appear together very closely connected, but distinctly named within a single text. The same thing again in baptism, um, where Jesus is baptized. You have the appearance of the Spirit in the form of a dove and the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Uh, you have it again, actually, at Pentecost, uh, the baptism of the Spirit upon the church, where you have a mention of the Son resurrected, raised to the right hand of the Father, um, who is pouring forth the Spirit, uh, who is being manifested in the charismatic gifts of that day. So you have you have moments in the Bible where we have to we have to get at the question: Who are these three? Uh, and that sort of gets into the distinctions of the persons. But then there's the other question of what are these three? Um, and if the answer is that these three are, in fact, um, unmistakably identified as God in Holy Scripture, then we need to bring that identification into some kind of coherence with the Bible's own witness to God's singular exclusivity. And I would actually argue, in addition to that, and also to his Simplicity, who is simplicity. So if I can sort of get it like this, the Trinity is really trying to give um, a coherent account of what the Bible requires us to believe and what it requires us to confess, even if it does not itself give us that confession in a kind of formulaic way in a single text. And the, if you can think of it like this, and I'm not, I'm not going for a triadic analogy here, but <clears throat> we're looking at three distinct sort of strands of biblical witness and data uh, that need to be held on to without compromise. The first one is that there is only one true God. Uh, and when I say, you no, know, typically we call this monotheism. Um, but if you, in the history of Christian doctrine, the, um, the oneness of God actually has a dual aspect to it. And I would argue both aspects need to be held on to for the Trinity doctrine to be a Trinity doctrine and not a tritheism doctrine. And they are the aspect of singularity, that there's one God, not many, and then also the act aspect of simplicity, that in his unity, he's not a composite of bits more fundamental than himself. So that mm. it's a unity, and it's not a, it's a unity of singularity, and it's not a composite unity of singularity. It's a simple unity of singularity. So that's the first thing. Whatever we're going to say about Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it cannot be said at the expense of that double affirmation of unity. One God who is simple. Um, that would be the first strand. <clears throat> the second one, and there are many ways you could arrive at that data. Um, you could look at Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Um, you can look at other texts, I am God, there is none beside me. Um, also, every, every sort of explicitly exclusivist text in the Bible would count, but you could also look at a text for this like I'll just give, this is sort of a, a, a rough version of this rationale, but in order to get to simplicity, you could look at something like Romans eleven thirty six: from him, through him, and to him are all things. And then necessarily God cannot be composed of parts because things composed of parts are actually from the parts of which they're composed. And God isn't from some source of being more fundamental than himself, in which case then there's not just one God, there's one God who is simple. All right. That's the first strand. Whatever we're going to say about the Trinity, it cannot be at the expense of that. All right. Um, the second strand is that the Bible identifies as dis identifies as God three who are distinct. 
Um, I, I think I once put it this way, that I've been, identifies um, three who are distinct as God. They're not distinct as God. They are, they are not distinct as God. They're actually distinct within the divine being. So whatever we're going to say, it identifies three as God who are in some manner distinct from each other. Um, and this is simply to say, the Father is not the Son or Spirit. The Son is not the Father or Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father or Son. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and yet not three gods. That third, that second strand is probably the most explicitly Trinitarian. You could almost say that the first strand is um, monadic if it is not brought into conjunction with this second strand, which is that, in fact, there are three who are God who are not three gods. Now, this, uh, this might be... This is one of the more this is one of the most difficult aspects to express or to articulate. If I say that there are three who are God but not three gods, first of all, I'm, I, I think it's good if, if Christians don't sugarcoat this and pretend like this is easily explained, like an eggshell, an egg white, and an egg yolk, or something like that. I think we need to let the mystery just sort of sit right there in the statement itself that there are three who are distinct from each other there are these three are god and they are not three distinct gods then you then you get to the it raises questions this is where the hard work of the theology of trinity comes in um something like i think augustine puts it this way in his great de trinitata you will he says something this is not quite a statement but this is 80% approximation he says something like you will say to me three what and what he means is there are three who are God, but not three gods. Well, three what who are God, who are not three gods? And Augustine says, I say three persons, um, which is a funny term, person, because we think that that's a biblical term, but it's not a Bible term, if you know what I'm if you know what I mean by that. In other words, the word person is just not in the Bible. Um, that that word is a Latin term, personae, uh, and the and the the Bible doesn't really have an exact Greek or Hebrew term that corresponds to what the Latin personae or person means. Um, so there's a lot of wrangling in early Christian theology about how to get the right terminology sort of suited for the doctrine. But Augustine says, "You'll ask me three what?" and he says, "I will say to you three persons, not in order to say that precisely." But in order not to be reduced to silence, which I think is like one of the was one of the all time most sophisticated cop outs ever, and it's the one that I'm very happy to employ to my for my own purposes, which is um, I'm going to say persons, but hold on a second, be careful not to load up the term person with all the ordinary freight that you usually attribute to it. So here we are, Jimmy Austin and James are having a conversation. We are three human persons, um, but, you know, not coincidentally, we are also three human beings. And in fact, every time that you have three human persons, you actually have three humans, okay? In the case of God, you have three divine persons, but you don't have three gods. And this is what I think Augustine is trying to warn us against, is sort of loading onto your, your assumptions about the word person all sorts of ordinary expectations that you might have about angels and humans when you use the language of person. So when he says, I say person, not in order to say that exactly, he means not quite exactly like you've ever used it for anyone else. Okay. So that's sort of where the, that, that's where theologians actually find all the words to write in their big long books is in that not exactly. Um, and then, then you get to spend 400 pages trying to say 
well, what then? Uh, the third thing, so the first thing is that there's only one God, singular and simple. The second, secondly, that scripture identifies um, as God, three who are somehow really distinct from each other. Um, and then the third is that these three are, I would, I would like to use the term, um, identical in being and all in terms of um, nature and power and substance and all that goes with that. We could just say co-equal um, or co-eternal. Um, and I would put both of those terms there so that there's a, so that there's not a hierarchy. So among the three, <clears throat> there may be an order of relations, but there's not a hierarchy of relations in terms of um, power or prerogatives uh, belonging to one person, but deprived of the other person. Um, there is with regard to Christ as incarnate, he was born under the law to do the will of his father with regard to his human nature. But as divine, um, he isn't, you know, he can say as human, the father is greater than I. But I think he says that from the standpoint of his position as incarnate and as form of the servant. Um, whereas in his, you know, morphetheu, his form of God that Paul, that Paul talks about in Philippians 2, there is in fact no, as it were, diminishment of rank, even if there is a secondary place of order in terms of relations. So co-equal, co-eternal, three who are distinct, three identified as God who are distinct, and only one God, singular and simple, in so much as the Bible requires that we believe each of those three, and in so much as we hold those three sort of strands of biblical data together, as I like to say, without flinching, <laughs> without blinking, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to give up. I'm going to give up co-equality to explain the distinctions of the persons in terms of hierarchy. That would be subordinationism. Or I'm going to, I'm going to give up singular unity in order to accommodate for three who are God, and I'm going to call them three substances, for instance, um, which would be really three beings. Um, in other words, the, the, there's a great temptation to sort of dissolve some of the mystery of the Trinity by diminishing the requirements of one or another of those three biblical strands of data. And in fact, in the history of Christian doctrine, that's where uh, Trinitarian heresies tend to raise their head, is in the attempt to explain part of the biblical data at the expense of another part of the biblical data. Uh, so, you know, heresies, that's that's not um, the abandonment of the faith. That's a distortion of the true faith by subject by by ridding yourself of one aspect of truth in order to make another one more understandable to you. So maybe maybe I'll leave it there. I don't want to that's sort of the biblical rationale though. Yeah, I mean mentioning heresies, um this next question has to do with just talking about the background and the development of the doctrine of the Trinity as it was formulated by the church. And, and a lot of that was hammered out because of the existence of heresy. So could you give us some of the background of how it came to be formulated, where these terms persons and, and substance and essence kind of came in to the debate? Sure. There's a, I mean, there's a long history here and some really great volumes and, and, and some really tedious volumes as well. Um, and so in the, in, at the expense of uh, trying not to be tedious uh, and all the, obviously not comprehensive, we can just simply say that with regard to the biblical requirements that we've kind of just outlaid there, um, full equality among the persons, real distinction among the persons, um, singular and simple divine being that the persons are, there's there's a temptation to 
sort of um, explain one aspect of that data at the expense of another. And the first real, um, and usually, by the way, the, the way this usually crops up in the history of the church is, um, is really with the question of the status and the person, the person and the status of Christ. Um, and that, and really the Christological question animates in, in large measure the Trinitarian one. Um, and it's usually some sort of perceived diminishment of Christ's power or glory or true divinity, some perceived diminishment of that, uh, that sort of causes the, the, you know, the, the sparks to fly in the attempt to defend the true divinity of the Son— um, not divinity in the second place, not a second-rate God, not God Jr., nothing like that. Something where Christ, where you can just say, he, him, that one, Jesus of Nazareth, he is God. Okay, that's a, that, the, confessing that without diminishment um, and confessing that he is God and that he is at the same time not the Spirit and not the Father Really, the attempt, the the need to identify the Son as Son, distinct from the Father and the Spirit, and as true God, is really sort of what that's sort of the ingredients for all the controversies that are going to bubble over in the early church. The first major one that's that's sort of properly Trinitarian is the question of of modalism, which sometimes has the name Sabellianism. And modalism is um a mo- is monotheistic. Um, they believe that there's one God, not many. It's with regard to that second strand of data. How? What exactly is the nature of the distinction between Father, Son, and Spirit? And where the modalist Sibelius is sort of the most notable, um, Tertullian attacks a guy named Praxius, um, who's a modalist. We're not sure if Praxius was a historic, in, because Praxius just means um, busybody. <laughs> and so it might have been like a nickname that Tertullian gave his theological opponent, just a, you know, up making theological mischief, call him a Praxius, a busybody. Or maybe there really was a guy who had that name. I don't know. Um, but he, he has several treatises against Praxius. And what is Praxius teaching? Praxius is trying to defend um, the biblical language of distinctions, between Father, Son, and Spirit, and also the biblical witness to the unity of being and the singularity of being that belongs to the true God. And so it really is a question of, it really is a question of what are the, this is the real question, the Father is true God, and and Father is the one true divine person. How is the Spirit or the Son and the Spirit distinct from the Father? And Praxius argues and Sibelius argues that that really the Son— is the person of the Father in so much as he is historically manifested for approximately 33 years plus 40 days, you know, as this man, Jesus. So that the the person of the Son, insofar as he's distinct from the Father, is really in the order of historic revelation, in which that's really the person of the Father showing himself for a season of time under the name of Son. And so that there isn't really a distinction between the Father and the Son. There's only a distinction between the Father and a particular historic manifestation of himself in the Son. And then I like to say the Son exits stage left uh, at, you know, before Pentecost, and then at Pentecost enters stage right. There's a new manifestation of the one person of the Father uh, who is the Spirit. Uh, and the Spirit is the even now current manifestation of the one person of the Father, so that there is no intrinsic divine distinction of the persons. There, there aren't multiple persons 
within the one being of God, there's really one person who manifests himself for a long duration as father, which is what he really is, and then for a shorter duration as son, um, which is nothing but a historic manifestation of the father, and then for a longer duration now as spirit, which is, again, nothing but yet another historic manifestation of the father. So that the distinction between the father, son, and the spirit is really a distinction between the one person and two peculiar historic manifestations of the one person. There is no such thing as a triune God um, as such. So that's the first. So the, so the question then is, how do we distinguish persons within the Godhead? Not distinctions between external manifestations, which we call persons, son and spirit, but actually distinctions within the one being of God himself. That's the first challenge. Um, the second one comes in the form of Arianism. And Arianism also argues that the sun is similar to the way that modalism argued that the sun is an historic external manifestation of God. Arianism argues that he is not just an historic manifestation, but that he is a real historic person distinct from the father, but that he is a created person. Um, so that the, the hierarchical relationship there between, say, the son and the father is not the distinction that Sibelius saw between an historical manifestation and the person manifested, it's actually a distinction between a created person and an uncreated person. Um, now, the son is the most awesome created person ever, ever, ever for Arius, and he's the one who actually in turn created all the other lower creatures below him so that you can still, you know, how do you do? How do you deal with the fact that the Bible calls Jesus the creator? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Why does he get, why is he given names like being God and doing things like creating, things that seem uniquely divine? And these are all for Arius sort of, um, honorific status terms but they don't they don't actually denote what the what the son is in terms of his his actual nature or being um he's not true god he's just the most godlike thing ever bearing names of god doing works god does for all things below him but he himself receives that same creative activity from the father really just an amazing creature um that that blows up in the second decade of the third century so the, uh, of the fourth century sorry so by 325 in order to sort of create peace in the in the newly unified roman empire the emperor constantine calls a council at nicaea uh, and basically tells the church to for the good of for the good of civic order and decency um make this controversy among yourselves go away um this controversy between Arius, who had this somewhat diminished view of the sun, and his bishop Alexander in Alexandria, Egypt, who had the view that the sun was really true God. And that that's sort of the second, and I would say major phase of Trinitarian debate, which is how do we say that the sun is true God? The Nicene Creed says he's God of God, light of light, and then it says very God of very God, which I don't know, when I used to hear that as a kid, I thought it sounds like really, really, really God which actually probably is what it means, more or less. Uh, and it's the idea that there's nothing that it means to be God that the Father has and the Son does not. Okay, So it's not God in a diminished, second-rate, you know, junior form, uh, a chip off the old block, you know, as we might say. Um, but that anything the Son is in terms of divinity, he is you know, homoousios, of the same being or of the same substance with the Father. And this sameness is really where you get uh, the identity of true God and also the identity of co-equality. 
not God in a not God Jr., not an intermediary, semi-divine being like the Neoplatonists had, so, sort of running interference between the most God of all gods and then mere creatures. There's that sort of creature who's not a mere creature because he's a creature who creates other creatures below him. That kind of hierarchical mediatorial function that you have with demiurges or semi-divine demigods in Neoplatonism. The church is emphatically saying that is not the role of the son um, with regard to the God world distinction. And it kind of, I mean, for the most part, those are the earliest controversies. There is a third that blows up very briefly in the sixth century of tritheism, uh, in which there aren't just three who are God, but there are three gods. This was historically probably um, the least um, the least uh, disruptive because it just seems so obviously polytheistic. Um, whereas the other two heresies were actually heresies of a monotheistic variety. Um, Arius is a monotheist. Sibelius is a monotheist. Athanasius, the great champion of Nicaea, is a monotheist. Uh, and two of those are heresies and one of them isn't. Uh, so that's sort of the historic. And so it forces the church to revisit the, the biblical sources to really get to how do we deal with Jesus saying the Father is greater than I if, in fact, he's very God of very God and there's nothing of godness that is in any way diminished in the Son? How can he talk about the Father being greater? And then it, then it really gets into sort of a, an exegetical debate how to handle texts like that. Hmm. So anyway, well, that's my longish answer to, to my longish abbreviated answer to the question of sort of the early church sort of controversies and, and thrashing out the language of how to talk about this. Well, I commend you for that answer because you mentioned how tedious some writings are. And so thank you for that uh, explanation on how uh, the doctrine of the Trinity came to be formulated uh, by the church. Our next question is, can you define some of the key terms in the classical formulation of the Trinity like essence, substance, nature, and person, subsistence? Right. And while this line, that much of that language was common coin in the third and fourth century, interestingly, it's, it's, in fact, interestingly, it's, it's common coin now. We talk about things being essential or substantial. You know, this was a, this is a substantial problem. Um, it's essential that you do, you know, I mean, we use the language, substance, essence language, um, nature and natural. I mean, this language has not gone away. Um, so there's a certain sense in which while the language certainly, what had very early coinage. Um, and I think some people talk about sort of the difficulty of that language. I think what's happened is it's passed over into common discourse. And in that, and there's a rationale for that, but in that movement into sort of common everyday talk, um, the exact and precise meanings of the language start to become somewhat obscured um, and we, we tend to associate um, truncated or metaphorical uses of the language with the real meaning of the language. Um, excuse me. Whereas in like the, whereas I think in the third or fourth century, or I might even say in the 17th century, I'm looking, I'm, I'm looking here as we're talking at the second London confession of faith, the second London confession, 1677 is talking about God being infinite about there being, oh, I love the second London. The Westminster says in this, uh, in this uh, divine and infinite being, there be three persons. It's always sounded kind of funny to me. There be three persons. Um, the Baptists, 30 years later, omit any mention of persons. And in fact, we substitute the word subsistences. 
not normally done on our like persons and personal and personality. And this is all kind of normal everyday talk. Subsistence and subsistences, not so much. Um, and yet 30 years later, they're choosing a more arcane language. Um, I think actually feeling the pressure that um, that Augustine was mentioning many, many centuries earlier, which is three what and how and how do I say it precisely? And person doesn't say it exactly. Is subsistence a more precise term than person? Undoubtedly, it is. Is it a far more obscured term for to the modern mind than the word person? Also, undoubtedly, that is true. Um, so you find this, but all I'm saying is this isn't third and fourth century language. Some of this language is everyday 21st century language. And some of this language was still common coin in academic and learned circles in the 17th century. Um, so even as I look at as I look at the confession, it says of, of one, of one substance, power and eternity, having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. I mean, what is, what do we mean by a, a divided essence and an undivided essence? And what's the, and what, why does it matter that you say one and not the other? And um, are there heretical implications if I say the essence is divided and, and then what is an essence anyway? You know, that's sort of those sorts of questions. So let me hit a few of these and I'm just going to pick the ones that are, um, I'm going to pick the ones that are in the confession, um, just because because it's our confession, or at least it's it's for those of us that are confessing Reformed persons uh, or Roman Catholics who still have to hold to all the creeds and councils. It's they have to because they have to. Um, then then you, what does the language mean? Um, so maybe maybe a few attempts at this. Now I'm going to I'm going to beg forgiveness on the front end of this for any listeners uh, who find this um, overly taxing and eggheaded. I I don't quite know the way around that. I think the only way to get to clarity about eggheaded ideas is to adopt an eggheaded uh, approach and sort of get on the inside of it. So here's my best attempt at that. Um, a substance is that which exists in its own right or in itself. Um, we might say it exists in se or per se. That is to say it, it properly has an active existence all its own. Now, I'm going to be very careful uh, guarding my flank here from any accusation of heresy. I'm not saying that a substance necessarily exists au se, right? An au se thing is something that exists of itself. It is its own reason for existing. And there's only one being that is truly ase, uh, and that's God. Um, and we call this divine aseity for the purpose that this is just God's of himselfness. So I'm not saying substances are ase, even though the divine substances, I'm saying a, a substance is that which, properly speaking, um, has an act of existence that's proper and, and immediate to it. Now, that might seem strange. Like, well, doesn't everything that exists have its own act of existence that's all its own? Um, and the answer to that question is, in fact, no, uh, that that's not the case. Some things do not subsist and they are not substances. They are what we call instead accidents. Now, an accident, you think that's a car wreck or, you know, falling off a ladder or something like that. Um, and uh, those are accidents, but they're accidents simply because they are instances of ad cadere, which is, that's where accident comes from, to fall upon a thing, that which comes upon a thing, a state of being that comes upon you and that exists in you really, but, um, but you can exist without it as well. So for instance, um, I am currently in the post, my posture is currently that of being seated. Okay. But before I sat down for this talk 
that we're having, I was in fact standing up. Um, and the form of standing is a really distinct form of being from sitting. I really am not standing now, and I really am seated right now, and I'm a human who was standing, and I'm a human who was seated. So there's a question about the actuality or the being of standing and being seated. Standing is a real state of being. Sitting is a real state of being. They are two different pos- there are two different positions in which a body might be found. Okay. But this is the point about standing and sitting. Standing and sitting really exist, but they don't exist per se. They do not exist in se. That is to say, they do not exist by themselves. You know what I'm after? So that you're not like the sitting in which I currently find myself can only exist in me, the sitter. And when I get up after our talk and I walk over to the kitchen to get a drink of water or something like that, um, I'm going to lose the form of being seated. Okay. Where is the form of being seated, which is real in me going to be at that point? It's, it's not going to be at that point. Um, I, who was seated, will still be, but my state of being seated won't be anymore. So where did the seatedness go? Okay, and that's the question. So seatedness is a real state of being, but it doesn't exist in itself. It's like um, uh, the wall behind me in our interview uh, is green. And we could talk about the green of my wall, but that, but that green um, is a green that that exists only in, well, technically, I was going to say in the wall, but technically in the in the pigmented um, chemical pigments of, you know, that make up the green. But like you never you never took a walk around your neighborhood and bumped into some green, just green, not you know, you always bumped into someone wearing a green sweater or or somebody or some or, you know, a green patch of grass or a green leafy tree or, you know, a green like never just green because green is not a substance. Green is a quality of color that characterizes a substance. And where there's no body to be colored, that is the substance, there's no color able to exist. All color exists in things that aren't colors, namely bodies. Sweaters, blades of grass, leafy trees, uh, paint, pigments, that kind of thing. So, what we're, so when we say a substance, what we mean is um, a being, a thing which immediately has its own act of existence proper to itself. How do accidents exist? They're real, but they do not exist by an act of existence that belongs to them personally, so to speak. That's the wrong word, but you know what I'm after. The existence of green is actually the existence of the substance, and green is deriving its own existence from the existence that the substance has. Accidents need the being of substances for accidents themselves to be. Their being is not a being that subsists. It's it's what we say. It's a being that inheres. Okay, so things that are inherent are things that can't subsist. To inhere and to subsist are two ways of being. One of them is a way of being in which you exist with a proper act of being all your own. And the other one is a thing that doesn't have its own proper act of being, but only exists by qualification or inherence in a substance. So like tall and short and and fat and thin and sitting and standing um, and running and walking and red and green and blue and purple, none of those things exist per se, but that doesn't mean they don't exist really, but they only exist by virtue of the existence of the things in which they inhere. All right. That's a longish explanation on substance. That's sort of the core of it. A substance is a being in the most proper sense of a thing with its own proper active existence. Okay. So when we say, so when it says um, that the three persons are one in substance, 
What it actually means is that they are the same thing. They are the same being. Um, they aren't three beings of the same kind. Like we are all, we are all each human beings, but we have distinct acts of being. If I'm older than the two of you, then I want them. Then I once had, I was once a substance with an active being, and you guys were just a gleam in your parents' eyes. Um, in which case, then you know, in which case, then I had existence and you didn't have it. So that while okay, once you were born, once you were conceived in your mother's womb at the very instant of conception, you were endowed with all the dignity of the same nature or essence as I have, namely humanity. Austin and Jimmy are humans. They aren't more human. They aren't less human than James is, but they aren't the same human James is. We are three We are three different substances of the same kind. That's sort of um, species and genus type language. So I don't know, to use Aristotle's language, we're all rational animals, which I, I mean, that's not everything I want to say about man, but I think that's not wrong to say about man. Um, we are all rational animals. Um, and yet we're not all the same rational animals. We have the same genus, animality. We have the same species, um, intellectual, um, but we aren't the same beings within that genus and species. When the, when the text says that the, that the three persons are a, of one substance, it's actually saying that whatever the three are, it's not three distinct beings with each with his own distinct act of existence that is over and above the act of existence of the other. The existence of the Son is the existence of the Father, is the existence of the Spirit, though the Son is not the Father and the Son is not the Spirit. So we're going to have to locate the distinction at, at some, in some way other than substance, otherwise tritheism, otherwise tritheism. I don't know if that's that's my longest view on substance. Essence is somewhat related. Um, essence is really what gives you whatness or quiddity. So um, the easiest thing is to pick out. So, so we're all we're all uh, here together um, online, and I'm looking in front of each of us, and and each of us has um, each of us has an artifact placed before our mouths, which is a microphone. Um, and each of us has a distinct microphone. Some have, some have a black fuzzy ball on top. Others have a, you know, different look to it, but we all have a distinct microphone, um, sitting in front of us. And I could, you know, if you could imagine someone from like 200 years ago, looking at these objects before our mouths, they might say, what is that? Okay. Right. I mean, what is that? Um, and they can see that it's, um, metallic for instance, or, I, I don't know actually what foam is. I see that Jimmy has a foam cover on his microphone. I, I don't know what foam actually is. I mean, funny thing is I touch it and I let people like insulate my house with it, but I don't really, but I know that it's something, you know what I mean? I know that it's something or other, but below your, below the foam, there's a, this microphone. And what you're really saying is um, you're not asking about the matter. You're asking about the what, okay? So if I said, well, this is, oh, it's a material thing. Yeah, I can see that. That doesn't quite, I mean, that says a little bit of what it is, but that doesn't really tell me what it is. In fact, it's an electronic device for the recording and or amplification of sound. And, you know, they used to have bullhorns for this. Now we've got microphones and wires and somehow it achieves the same end of amplifying voices. Um, and, you know, what's the point of all this? But when you're asking what, you're really, you're really asking the essence, the whatness of a thing, or the older writers would have said the quiddity of a thing. So when it comes to God, when, the Bible has terms for this, like theotes is the term the New Testament uses for God. Godness, really, divinity. Um, humanity is your essence. It's your, it's your whatness. And everything that is 
everything that is included in an essence is necessary for the being of a thing of this kind. So that if you were missing any essential parts, you would not in fact have um, that essence. You would just have the components of that essence um, potentially have that essence, but the essence is really the whatness of a thing. I should throw out there as an aside, um, substances have substances have an essence. Like my substance has the essence of humanity. I have a dog, Josie. Josie has the essence of caninity. It's you know, Josie and James are both material entities. In fact, we're both animals. One of us is more rational than the other, and I don't mean to boast, but it's me. Um, but we're both we're both material. We're both we're both we both uh, metabolize food and process it and and grow in terms of body size and all this. By now, I do eat different food, better food, but nevertheless, it's all you know. There's a lot of there's a lot of sameness. But but at the at the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, <laughs> Josie Josie does things that are proper to her essence. Um, barks at the mailman and and then uh, and then other things. Digs holes under the backyard fence. I never did those things because it's not in my uh, what I am. Sort of dictates what I do and how I go about it, and I live differently. You could say, "What is Josie? Josie is a dog. She is an instance of caninity. If I if Josie dies and her and her body gets metabolized into soil, then what that matter is will no longer be canine. It will be soil. And if that gets metabolized into grass, what that matter is, it'll be the matter, but it won't be dog matter or corpse matter or soil matter. It'll be grass matter. And if Bossy the cow eats it, it'll be metabolized into bovine matter. And if Bossy goes uh, to the slaughterhouse, she'll be um, she'll lose the um, essence of bovinity and take on the essence of steak. And then we'll sear it at 1800 degrees and I'll eat it. And through a process of metabolization, the essence of steak will be lost to that matter. And the essence of human humanity will be imposed upon that matter. So are we all good on this? This is this is sort of the essence is the the essence answers the question, what is this thing? You're asking about kind. Um, all right. So that's essence is whatness. Substance is the thing with its own proper active existence. So that when we talk about like the essence of God, we're really talking about the godness of God, that in virtue of which God is God and not something else, not some other kind of thing. Um, what makes him this? What gives him this what? And not another. What is God? He's not a dog. He's not a cow. He's not a blade of grass. He's not a clod of soil. Um, he is, and then whatever you say, God is essentially. Those are all the things that are necessarily true about God, just for God to be God. That's that's really whatness. Um, I what, is, what was the other? One? Oh, nature. Nature's a little dicey. Um, literally, nature means that with which one is born. And obviously, God, the, the Father is unbegotten. Um, and therefore, we can't say that the Father is born. And so nature is sort of used, nature is used in a kind of imprecise way for God. Um, nature usually is a way in which we indicate how a thing behaves, or how a thing operates, given its essence, because it is what it is, it functions in this way and those are those are aspects of its nature god god doing uniquely godlike things it uh is the divine nature if i could say it like this what we're saying with the father son and spirit is that there is there is no partitioning of this among themselves so that there's no division of the essence um in this respect the father is not 33.333 percent god the son another 33.3 the same with the spirit these are they are not essential parts of god and he sent like in a human, I have essential parts. 
namely soul and body. My soul is not all that I am as a man, and my body is not all that as I, am, I am as a man. I'm actually a composition. I'm in a composition of two essential parts. Each one contributes to the totality. But this isn't what we're saying about divinity. Divinity is not, as it were, cobbled together out of things that are not divinity, like a soul is not humanity as such, and a body isn't. Actually, the soul-body union uh, is what constitutes an, a real a real instance of humanity. And in fact, man is, in the resurrection, we really become true humans again when the material and immaterial parts are brought together. But what we're saying is the essence of God isn't, in fact, a consequent of one part father, one part son, one part spirit being cobbled together to produce divinity. So like when the confession says that that each has the whole the whole essence and yet the essence undivided, it doesn't mean that they are parts of the whole essence. It means that all that it means for God to be God is true of the son, true of the spirit, true of the father, not by partition um, and also not by multiplication within a species. One God, a second God, and a third God. Um, rather, the same divinity by which the Father is divine is identically the exact same divinity by which the Son and the Spirit are also divine. And in this way, we intend to sort of hold together the unity of the divine being, that there's one God, not three. The Probably the, the more difficult question is with regard to how to then distinguish the persons if, in fact, they are unified in this really comprehensive way. Um, so I don't know, if, Austin, if I could anticipate you on that. Um, should we talk? We should talk about that. We should talk about distinctions. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. All right, let's, let's hit. Uh, we could we could hit that there. Then then there's the question. Well, what makes it the case that the Father is not the Son and not the Spirit? If in fact they are of one substance and power, and if they all have the same essence and the essence undivided, it's not partitions of the essence that distinguishes them. It's not multiplication of the substance that distinguishes them. That would be tritheism. So what grounds the otherness within God of Father and Son, Father and Spirit, and then likewise Son and Father, Son and Son to the other two persons, Spirit to the other two persons, and this, this really is the challenge. The early church comes near it. The Bible actually will enable us to do this as well. The answer given historically is um, the confession says several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. There's a key word that appears in both of those phrases, relative and relations. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.